Hi, everyone. This is Mark Lefsessian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's, and I'm joined again by my friend and colleague, the Center's other co-director, Mark DiGirolami, for an episode of Legal Spirits, our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, and also on various streaming platforms, including Apple iTunes, Android, Spotify, and others. Well, Mark, uh, our podcast today is going to be a traditional one for us, uh, which is the end of the term wrap-up. Um, sometimes the court goes out with a whimper, but, but this term really feels more like a bang for a lot of reasons. The court decided a number of important cases in law and religion. We're not going to canvas all of the court's decisions in law and religion in this podcast, because there are a few of them. Uh, we'll do some of the others later. But today we're going to focus on two particularly big decisions in the church and state area, and that's the Carson case and the Coach Kennedy case, Carson versus Macon, and then uh, Bremerton versus Coach Kennedy. These are um, really important cases. I think they're some of the most significant cases the court has decided, well, really in decades. Um, we've talked about them before. Uh, listeners will remember some of our previous podcasts. But we're going to do what we're going to do here is is talk about the big picture items that these cases represent. And they really are big picture items. You can't, I think, overestimate these, uh, these decisions. And then we'll offer some of our views on them. And then, as I say, we'll talk about some of the other cases in subsequent podcasts. Okay, Mark, well, the first one we want to talk about is Carson versus Macon, which, as I said a second ago, may be one of the most important law and religion decisions in quite some time. This is one of the court's recent funding decisions with respect to public funding for religious institutions, religious schools in particular. So, so Mark, why don't you start us off with the facts of Carson? Okay, great. So we'll talk about Carson first. Carson is about a program run by the state of Maine. And I should say, we'll run through the facts somewhat quickly here. Listeners who are interested, uh, Mark and I refer you to some of the other podcasts that we've done on these cases for greater, a greater or a deeper dive into the facts. But but just to sort of remind you, Maine, like many states, operates public schools and uses school districts for their operation. And it's a, it's a requirement of the Maine Constitution that individual towns make provision for a, quote, free public education, close quote, for school-aged children you know, res residing in Maine. Um, but because Maine is very rural and because of the burden that this imposes on lots of main towns that would have to run uh, uh, schools without very much population, um, uh, and, and because of their remoteness, Maine's legislature adopted a measure of tuition assistance for families that live in these very rural areas. And, and, and the rule is that if a town doesn't operate a school system or doesn't contract with some public or private school for the education of the children, um, then the town has to pay the tuition of whatever approved public or private school the student or the student's family chooses. So private schools are included. Uh, and in fact, there's a very broad geographic range of approved private schools. They could be a single sex school and so on. Basically, to be approved for this program, the school has to be accredited. Um, and as of uh, an addition to the law in 1981, uh, it has to be a, quote, non-sectarian school in accordance with the First Amendment of the Constitution. Uh, and, and by that, um, the Maine's legislature seems to mean that it, that it not be 
teaching the material in light of or through the lens of the distinctive faith of the of the of the school. And the reason and the reason Mark that Maine did that was they thought that providing any money to these schools would violate the establishment clause of the First Amendment, right? That's that's why they tried to exclude sectarian schools. That's correct. That was that that's the reason that um, first Maine's attorney general offered this opinion and then the legislature adopted that opinion. So the issue in the case is whether the policy violates the free exercise clause. You have a couple of families who live in areas without these school districts and they want their kids to go to two different Christian schools, but the state said, look, even though these schools are otherwise qualified, you know, they meet the student-teacher ratios, they teach the right sorts of things and so on, they're disqualified because they were determined by uh, the state to be sectarian schools. So those are the background facts. Uh, below at the First Circuit, um, the, the claimants, the parents lost. And so now they appeal to the Supreme Court. Right. And there are a couple of other cases that have been decided recently that that uh, are relevant here. Right. There's the Trinity Lutheran case and then Espinoza, which provide the background. So what did those cases say? Mark? Yeah. So so those cases which were relied on by the majority, there was a majority in this case, six, three uh, uh, with Chief Justice Roberts uh, uh, writing the majority opinion. But those, those cases that you mentioned, the Trinity Lutheran and the Espinoza case, Trinity Lutheran concerned a state grant to public and private schools for the resurfacing of playgrounds. And the court said there, well, the state can't exclude religious schools or schools affiliated with churches on the basis of the religious character of those schools. So that was status, right? Status, status. right. The, the language, I actually went back to look at it and they called it character, religious character. Oh, OK. Um, but 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 it's essentially status. Right. That's what we're talking about uh, on the on the on the school's identification or existence as a religious school. The second was uh, the more recent case, Espinoza versus Montana, where Montana provided tax credits to certain donors that then sponsored scholarships for private school tuition. And again, Montana, in this case, the Montana Supreme Court, prohibited those tax credits for being used to pay for tuition at religiously affiliated private schools. And again, the Supreme Court struck down that prohibition. So it said religiously affiliated schools cannot be excluded from the program on the basis of their religious status or character. Um, just to promote the same kind of thing that was going on here, Mark, just to promote what Montana thought was required by church state separation. Um, right. So so this gets up to the Supreme Court. And once again, the Supreme Court rules in favor of the parents, rules against rules against the government. Right, Mark? That's right. So so uh, the court said these two previous cases are enough to dispose of this case. Um Maine, the court said, offers a benefit, right? They go out of their way. They, they offer an affirmative benefit. Uh, that is tuition assistance payments for any family whose school district doesn't provide a public school. Maine opted for this neutral benefit program. And it's true, while those funds could benefit religious organizations, they're only going to do so because students or their parents or families would choose um, uh, to use the money in that way. So there was no, there is no problem with the establishment clause. And then furthermore, with respect to Maine's interest in a stronger separation of church and state or a stronger read of the establishment clause than, than, than is required by the establishment clause, well, we know um, once once you've got discrimination against a particular religious group, well, that's going to be evaluated by the standard of strict scrutiny, 
Um, and Maine's interest in a stronger separation of church and state, and according to their own reading of the Establishment Clause, is not a compelling interest, is not a compelling interest under the strict scrutiny standard, such that the Free Exercise Clause uh, concerns sort of, you know, go away or are counterbalanced by, by, a, by a, the compelling state interest in uh, more more uh, uh, disestablishmentarianism than what the Establishment Clause required. Yeah, and you know, Mark, I see this. There's another case that's relevant here, too, that we didn't discuss from like 20 years ago called Zellman, in which uh, this was the school voucher program in which the court made clear that if the state is giving money to parents and some parents decide on their own to, to send that money to religious institutions, that is not an Establishment Clause violation. And I, I think that was also very important here. I think you're right. And it was cited by the court as well. It said, look, state of Maine, you don't have to have one of these programs. But if you do have uh, this kind of program filtered through the kind of Zelman, uh, Zelman-esque free choice or voluntary choice system, which is what they have, then you can't exclude religious schools. Um, so, you know, there were a couple of grounds that, that Maine tried to get around some of these prior decisions. It said, first, well, what we're really offering here is the equivalent of a public education. And if you're a religious school, you can't offer, you can't give the equivalent of a public education. And the court said, no, we don't, we don't buy that. What, what, you're, what you're offering is tuition assistance. That's the benefit because, of course, you're including private schools. So private schools, for a variety of reasons, are not going to be offering the equivalent of a public education because they're private schools. Um, that's number one. And then number two, there was one other case that Maine relied on um, to try to distinguish this situation from uh, the previous the previous cases. And that is one that, at least arguably, we, we certainly thought in previous discussions about these matters might make a difference. And that's a case called Locke versus Davey. Um, uh, and it and it sort of gets to the status use distinction that you were talking about before. In Locke versus Davey, the court held that the state of Washington Washington could exclude from a higher education scholarship uses of the money to fund degrees that would train ministers. Um, and again, the court rejected this distinction. It said. Uh, first, its prior precedents in Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza never rested on the distinction between status and use. Yeah, which is a bit of a surprise because they certainly seemed to rest on that distinction. Certainly, Trinity. I mean, you know, at one point I was going to write an article about this, about the new status-based religious liberty. I'm glad I didn't because apparently I misunderstood those cases. Yeah, you know, Mark, it's funny. We'll, we'll talk about this in Bremerton uh, also, but it's it's. Uh, this is kind of a, a pattern in, in the in the style of the cases that we see, you know, it, uh, distinctions or issues that seem very quite quite clearly to have been carved out by the court or, or not to have been addressed by the court. It says, well, of course, we never met that. Right. You know, we, we you know, there should have been obvious to anybody reading this. And, and you know, OK, well, we didn't we didn't <laughs> get that bad signal, I, I guess. Right. Uh, uh, I guess so. <laughs> At any rate, Locke was basically, and I thought this part of the case was kind of interesting. The, the court said, um, you know, Locke is limited to the particular practice at issue in that case. That is using public monies to fund college degrees in ministry. So that was kind of an interesting limitation of Davy to a specific practice, which, you know, to a, 
to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. This is sort of a, what I've described in other work as, as a traditionalist sort of approach that, that that issue is you have to sort of examine the particular practice under, uh, under review to see whether it's a similar kind of practice to what has been, what has been held you know, by the court in the past, either to violate or not to violate the establishment clause. Well, we're going to talk about tradition in the next case, too. But I agree with you that and as, as the two of us have sponsored the tradition project in the past, the center about the importance of tradition in law and culture. And I think we were onto something because the, the course decisions this term uh, in other cases, too, not just church and state cases, seem very, very much to turn on historical practices and tradition. That's right. Um, there was another thing about the case I thought interesting, Mark. I mean, it is an important case. There's no question about that. And, you know, it, it ties up a lot of these loose ends. But it did leave one question open, which I think is going to be important in the future. Uh, the, dissent the dissenters brought up the fact that Breyer and also Sotomayor brought up the fact that these two religious schools um, uh, engaged in practices that might be seen as discriminatory by others in the state. You know, they they insisted on having only evangelical teachers on the faculty and other things like this. And um, the dissenter said, well, look, you know, maybe the other voters in Maine aren't going to be happy with this. And maybe this is an issue that we need to think about when we ask about what the Establishment Clause requires or doesn't. And the court waved that away. The court said, well, that those concerns were not at play in this case, because the Maine statute as a category excluded religious schools. And so the court seems to be leaving open for future cases the question whether a state could restrict funding to religious schools that engage in, um, in discriminatory so-called practices or you know, practices that limit the teachers to being members of particular religions. Don't you think, Mark, that, that's the next case? It could well be, right? I did notice that little asterisk footnote in the majority opinion that kind of set those issues to the side. Um, you know, the, the, there is going to be the the usual trouble there of, of the state distinguishing uh, among religious uh, points of view to the extent that these points of view are like, well, we're going to admit these. You, you might get back to the same kind of sectarian, non-sectarian problem um, that is that is already seemingly addressed in this opinion. Um, so it, it could be right. It, it might be that some some more narrowly tailored statute in the future um, uh, might present a different issue, but you're right. We'll have to wait to see what happens on this ground. But at the moment, at least an important decision with, uh, with I think in, in some ways, because of implications that it might have for other kinds of things, um, you know, religious charter schools. Uh, this is something that our, our mutual friend, professor Nicole Garnett has talked about, um, depending on whether those schools are private schools or public schools, are they included within the compass of this rule? Must the state fund them as well, or, or at least along these lines, if it decides to fund other sorts of? So a lot of a lot of um, uncertainty, uh, but but potentially a very big decision. Yeah, I agree with that. That would have been a big enough decision to mark a term. But the court also decided uh, this week, actually just yesterday, we're recording this the day after. Another case which seems to me to have major implications as well. And this is Bremerton versus Kennedy, or let me get the name right exactly. It's Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Sorry, I think I've loved that before. Um, and this is a case that we have considered a couple of times before. This is the case of the high school football coach who wants to pray on the 50-yard line after games. Uh, the case has bounced around the lower courts for years, in fact. Um, and this is the second time the case has been at the Supreme Court. So 
listeners to our podcast will know that we've discussed this in the past. Let me just quickly go through the facts here. And I have to say, one reason this case has bounced around so much is that the facts have been in dispute pretty much from the beginning. Um, initially, there were questions whether the school had fired Coach Kennedy because he had failed to supervise team members, you know, he wasn't doing his job. Um, then it turns out, no, the school fired him because of his insistence on praying midfield. That's how they kind of settled that dispute. Um, but then there are other factual disputes. You know, did Coach Kennedy subtly encourage his students to join him? Or did he simply engage in solitary prayer and the students came around spontaneously? And I think there was a there was a uh, change in actual like at one time he was doing certain things and then there were students that joined him. Uh, and then he said he would stop doing that. Um, and uh, after after the request of the school. So, like, it seems like there were sort of you know, incremental changes, as you say, in the facts along the way and just people including in the decision itself, the a majority in dissent continue to disagree about what the operative facts are. That's correct. That's an issue in this case, is that as, as a vehicle for deciding these issues, this case maybe wasn't the best because of all these factual problems. But, you know, as I tell my students, for precedential purposes, you have to go on the facts as the court presents them. And as the court presents it, the school district fired Coach Kennedy because he insisted on exercising his religion by praying on his own and for himself, that's what the court says, on his own and for himself, midfield after three football games in 2015. And the court held that in firing Coach Kennedy, that is the Supreme Court held, that in firing Coach Kennedy, the school district had violated his free exercise and free speech rights. Uh, this was again a six to three decision, only this time the opinion was by Gorsuch, not by Chief Justice Roberts, and there's a dissent by Justice Sotomayor. So let's, for our purposes, just stick with the free exercise issue, not the free speech issue here. The court said that the school district targeted Coach Kennedy for disfavored treatment because he was exercising his religion and that therefore strict scrutiny applies. Well, the same the same kind of approach, Mark, as what we have in the other in the other case, right? The same Correct. approach. Yeah, same approach. And the court went on to say the school district did not have a compelling reason to restrict Coach Kennedy. Um, again, the school district said, just as in the main case, that the interest was avoiding an establishment clause violation um, under the Lemon test. We're going to get to the Lemon test in a second. And the Supreme Court said no. The Supreme Court said what Coach Kennedy did would not violate the establishment clause properly interpreted. Therefore, the state was wrong. Therefore, there was no compelling interest in preventing Coach Kennedy from, from praying. Okay. Now, you know, I look at this case, Mark, and to me, it presents a paradox. On the one hand, it's a really big deal, as we've said a couple of times. We're going to explain why. On the other hand, you might say this is just another, or at least I would say, let's see what you think, Mark. This is just another narrow, fact-specific decision in the free exercise area. Okay, why do we say this? Well, first, let's say why this case is a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. Um, one is there's a footnote in the case regarding another case called Masterpiece Cake Shop from a few years ago, uh, in which the court says that expressions of insult to religious beliefs amount to a constitutional violation, even without strict scrutiny. Now, Mark, we've, and we've the, talked about this, and, and you think that this means that that this is a, a, a sort of interposes a sort of an additional reason to strike down... Uh, restrictions on the basis of the free exercise clause, yes? 
I think so. Yeah. I think Masterpiece Cake Shop is now, a, and especially after the footnote in the case yesterday, I think it's a separate vehicle. I think, you know, there's, there's, okay, if a law is not neutral, not generally applicable, we go to strict scrutiny. That's Fulton, right? And that's, that's, what we're, but if there's an expression of hostility on the basis of religion or, or insult, you know, something like disrespect in that way, then that's a constitutional violation right there. I think that's what the court has said, but we'll see. Just okay. per se, you mean, like a per se per violation. Se. Interesting. That's what I think. I could be wrong. That's what I would look. And okay, that's one thing. The second big deal here, and I think the real big deal, is that the court has finally overruled Lemon versus Kurtzman and the endorsement test. Actually, to, to the point you were making before, Mark, the court states that Lemon had already been overruled long ago. That's the word. That's the, those are the words it uses, long ago, in prior cases, um, which would surprise most commentators, right, Mark? I mean, we didn't think it was gone. Yeah, the language, the language doesn't doesn't actually use the term overruled, but it uh, the, the the dissent uses the term overruled. It says it has been rejected long ago. We sort of it's almost like it just sort of set it aside and um, and said, you know, both in the main part of the opinion and in a footnote, look, this has been a long time coming. We haven't been using the lemon test and the endorsement test for a long time. Um, by the way, for, for listeners, the, the lemon test, uh, uh, just as a, as a you know, quick uh, description of doctrine, it has these three requirements that a law has to have a secular purpose, the primary, um, a primary effect has to be of neither advancing nor inhibiting religion, and the third uh, leg of it is that uh, it cannot overly entangle, the regulation cannot overly entangle the state uh, with religious concerns. Um, you know, the, the, that, that test, uh, 1970s test, resulted later on for cases like this in what's been called the endorsement test. And that kind of picks up on that second leg and basically says um, anytime that the state um, gives off to a reasonable observer a message of uh, political inclusion or exclusion from the general community, um, that violates uh, the, the Establishment Clause. And so those tests are now gone, Mark, I think, right? Well, if we, if we believe the court, they have been gone for a long time and we just didn't really notice it. You know, they're, they're gone. And uh, so all the controversy about the endorsement test, whether it was consistent with originalism, whether it made any sense, you know, that's, that's all gone now. And the court says the test for interpreting the, the Establishment Clause is text and historical tradition. And the court cited for that proposition the legislative prayer case, Town of Greece from a few years ago, uh, and also the Bladensburg cross case. Now, as the Sotomayor dissent says, I think it's a fair point. The court doesn't really elaborate what that means, but it does seem that you know tradition has has made itself known again. This is this is now going to be the test. Um, if the court really means what it says here, this is a very big deal. They've overruled a 50-year-old precedent. Sound familiar? They've done that also in other case recently. Yeah. Um, and they have now announced a new test. So that's one reason why I'd say it's a big deal. And not only, right, but a, a test that, that, if I may say, you and I, again, we're back to this sort of traditionalist approach, looking at practices and so on. Now, as you say, there isn't very much in the way of application of the test uh, in this case, but there certainly is a lot in the way of announcing of the test. Um, and uh, and it might be that in future cases, you know, anytime you, you have a new approach, you want to see how it how it gets fleshed out, how it gets applied over a number of different cases. And so that's something for us to, and, and our listeners to be looking out for in the future. Right. Now that's why it's a big deal. That's why I say it's a big deal. But paradoxically, it might not be such a big deal. Why do I say that? Because 
The court says, all right, so now, Mark, you and I have already said they don't elaborate what this new tradition test means. But one thing we know it does mean, and they say this, that uh, according to the text and tradition, coercing worship would certainly violate the Establishment Clause. If you, you know, force someone to go and pray or worship, that's a violation. Now, the court said there was no coercion on these facts. And here again is where we have this, these disputes about what the facts here really are. Remember, under the court's interpretation, Coach Kennedy was simply praying on his own and for himself. He was not being given any official status to say the prayer. He was not encouraging anyone to join him. It wasn't like he was winking at the students that, you know, come and pray and I'll let you start in the next game. Nothing like that. So if you believe what the court says, there was no coercion here. So this is unlike other cases which remain on the books. Lee versus Weissman and the Santa Fe case in which the court said that officially sponsored prayer actually does create subtle, psychologically coercive pressures, uh, and that those prayers do violate the Establishment Clause. Those cases still stand. Yeah, and interestingly enough, I think it, one would be hard-pressed uh, to say that Lee and Santa Fe represent a text and tradition approach to uh, uh, constitutional interpretation, right? They themselves... I mean, I think, you know, there was the issue of psychological coercion and so on. There was the question whether, you know, Santa Fe really, really was uh, uh, the kind of case that would have been part of a historical tradition that would have been forbidden by the Establishment Clause. But at any rate, that is what the court says. Uh, those those cases are untouched. It's not like Lee was overruled. <laughs> um, no. Uh, that Lee, Lee, still, Lee still stands. And so you might, but maybe what you're seeing is a kind of merging of the coercion and tradition tests uh, in one way or another, at least for the moment. Right. And as I say, the reason why I say this is narrow is that it all depends on the facts. I mean, according to the dissent, there was a lot of coercion here. And I have to say just for myself, I don't think that's a crazy argument that the dissent was making. But the but the majority says no no this was this was no coercion as I say this he just did it on his own and he's allowed to do that yeah well part, okay part of it Mark you yeah. know has to do with the the with just these factual disputes right that the, the correct included a lot of pictures um, where you know you, the coach was surrounded by a lot of football players of team members or members of other teams and so on and there's a there's a question about um, just exactly. <laughs> At which moment, at which kind of prayer was the is the operative prayer uh, for purposes of of analyzing this question? Correct. Okay, there's one last point I want to make here. I can't resist pointing this out because there's a kind of interesting rhetoric in Gorsuch's opinion. I, I think of it as kind of as kind of intellectual jujitsu. You know, why do I say that? Well, most progressive commentary on the Establishment Clause argues that the government really has to do more to take account of minority religions, minority perspectives, you know, not oppress them, promote pluralism, in other words. And here, it's really interesting to me just rhetorically, Gorsuch makes the same point from the right. What Gorsuch says is the school was refusing to accept pluralism by allowing this conservative Christian to pray. Here's what, here's what he said. I'm quoting. By learning how to tolerate speech or prayer of all kinds, I'm sorry, but learning how to tolerate speech or prayer of all kinds is part of learning how to live in a pluralistic society, a trait of character essential to a tolerant citizenry. Of course, some will take offense to certain forms of speech or prayer they are sure to encounter in a society where those activities enjoy such robust constitutional protection. 
but offense does not equate to coercion. So this, I thought, was very interesting, Mark, because he's kind of flipping the table. He's saying, okay, you really believe in pluralism. You say you really want a diverse society. This is what a diverse society looks like. A conservative Christian gets to pray just as anyone else gets to pray. Um, you know, that's interesting. I'm sure it's going to inflame a lot of people that he said it that way. And I wonder, um, was this, do you think, Mark, this was an appropriate rhetorical flourish? What, how do you evaluate it? You know, I didn't have the same sort of reaction to it. I don't think that, that you had. I, I think it's probably true, just as true of, um, of someone who wanted to um, pray a, a Muslim prayer or, or, or pray, a, a, you know, another kind of a, a prayer of a, of a different of a different religious tradition at the 50 yard line. Now, maybe the idea is, well, you'd never see those kinds of prayers. But I think in some of the other cases that the court has decided involving religious freedom um, uh, in a variety of contexts, uh, cases involving um, the wearing of, of, um, of the hijab, for example, in, in, in the employment context, I think the court has said basically similar kinds of things that, that in a pluralistic country, there has to be a little bit of um, of, of allowance of, of, of and 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 sometimes, as you say, sometimes uh, that's gonna that's gonna uh, sort of benefit conservative Christians just as much as it might benefit other members of other other religious groups. Yeah, I don't know. As I say, I think it's interesting just just rhetorically, if nothing else, that you know the the rhetoric of these debates is typically typically along the lines that. You know, conservative Christians, you're the majority. You're the majority in this country. You need to be more accepting of other expressions. And here, Gorsuch really flips it, and he says, "Okay, well, look. Uh, in this case, it was the conservative Christian that they were trying to stop. And pluralism means he gets to speak too." And I, I just thought rhetorically that was an interesting way of putting it. As I say, I'm sure it's going to inflame people. I think it has inflamed people. I should also mention one one other thing, which is that we haven't talked at all about the free speech uh, rationale. You know, the the, the the school district had a number of reasons for restricting the speech of its own employees and so on. And that was an entire other sort of leg of, or, or, or piece of the opinion that, that we're not going to talk about. But it, it was also also worthwhile and, and worth checking out. Correct. Yeah. Well, I want to I'm going to I'm going to noodle with this a little more. This thing about the rhetoric in, in, in this case from Gorsuch and see what I think. I think I do think there's something changing when the court starts speaking like this. But but we'll see. You can't make too much of any particular sentence in an opinion. We'll, we'll see. Okay, well, this was pretty. Uh, this was pretty dense. This uh, this conversation, intense too. We had a lot of things in here. As I say, there are other cases. We just haven't had a chance to get to them yet. We'll try to get to them later. But these two cases really are genuinely important, and we wanted to get this out to our listeners right away. So uh, for now, this is Mark Mavsesian and Mark DiGirolami with another episode of Legal Spirits, our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, and also on various streaming platforms like Apple and Android and Spotify and so on. Okay, Uh, that's it for now. See you next time.